The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray for you. God, we give you thanks for drawing us together today to worship you and to connect with one another. And Lord, we are grateful for the magnificent work that you are doing in this place through so many people, both as the gathered church and as we leave here to go to our, pla- our homes, our places of businesses, our schools. And we would ask, God, that you would continue to empower us to be your people in our communities, in our neighborhoods, uh, that we may be genuine reflections of your grace, your humility, your love for all of creation. And God, that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to live out the fruit of a life lived alongside and walking with you, that we be people of joy and peace and patience. God, that we be people of goodness and love and hospitality. Lord, that we would always be the kind of people who lived into our world with a great sense of expectation of what you were doing and what you have done. And so toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of teaching that all things said here be from you and because of you and guiding us towards you, that we would live, God, by your word and your word alone in a a world and in a country and in a culture that wants us to swear allegiance, that we give our only allegiance to you, that the only voice that we adhere to is yours. And so would it be in our hearts, God, that you would transform us, that you would renew us, that you would continue the good work that you have begun through the power of Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Just last week uh, in my small group, we were having a conversation about spiritual disciplines. We're walking through uh, some spiritual disciplines right now because uh, I'm just a big believer in spiritual practices, and that's what shapes us to become the kind of people that God intends for us to be, and that lots of times in life we just think that we're going to show up one day and be more joyful or more hopeful or more loving, and that's just not how it works. So uh, what actually does work is training ourselves through the power of the Spirit to be a certain kind of people. And and so we're on this journey together in my small group on spiritual practices. And two weeks ago, we were talking about uh, a core spiritual practice that most people don't know is a spiritual practice. But when they hear that it's a spiritual practice, when they learn that it's a spiritual discipline, it soon becomes their absolute favorite spiritual discipline. So the, the best spiritual discipline that no one knows is a spiritual discipline is sleep. And I know some of you are telling yourself right now, all these years, I've been a spiritual giant and I just didn't know it because I rock at sleeping. So we were talking about sleep and its connection to rest and what God does uh, through all of our sleep and rest. And like when people hear that, they're always shocked. But really, when you go off, if you were to go off to a 30 or a 40-day retreat, like at a silent retreat center, one of the first things that most people do when they get into those spaces is that they spend like three or four days just asleep because we're all so overtired and we're worn down, but we're used to it, that we don't know that we're overtired and worn down. And I don't know about you when I hear about the spiritual practice of sleep when I first heard it. I really wish that I knew about it when I was a teenager because I rocked at sleeping when I was a teenager. And I just wish that as a kid, when my mom would come in my room to wake me up in the morning to either go to school or go to church, that I could just say, 
I'm just spending my time with the Lord. Woman, leave me alone. I need this time. Because I could sleep through anything when I was a kid. On, on Saturday mornings, my brother, whose room was right next to mine, he would wake up and he would just crank up his stereo. Uh, a stereo is this, this thing we used to listen to music on. Um, <laughs> and my dad would be downstairs and he'd watch wrestling and it'd be loud and our neighbor would be out mowing his grass and it would be like, like super early in the morning and there really should be a law about how early in the morning someone should mow their grass. We had people yesterday mowing their grass at 6 a.m. Right. And I was up anyway, but I was still kind of mad about it. it like... And even when um, I got to college, I got even better at sleeping um, because that's when you could first, you remember going to college and it first dawned on you, like, I can just not go to class. <laughs> like, that's totally a thing. And even when we were first married, when Rochelle and I were first married, on like a lazy Saturday morning, I would sleep till like 10, 30, 11, 11, 30. We didn't have anything to do. And so like, I was really, I mean, like, if there was a chart of being, you know, a spiritual hero, like I should be in the scriptures as a hero of the faith if sleeping is a spiritual discipline because I was really good at it, but I'm not good at it anymore. When I used to sleep all the time, I could sleep anywhere. And do you know what changed? Why I'm not good at sleeping anymore? Kids. Because once you have kids, your sleeping days are done. Like, you just might as well give that up. You expect it. Like, when you have, when you have little kids, like when you have babies, like you think, okay, this is just going to be the way it is. They're going to wake up. They're going to need to be fed in the middle of the night. We're just going to have to do that. That's the whole thing. When our girls were babies, Rochelle and I had a system. And because in those days I stayed up pretty late at night, but she was staying at home uh, during the day. So the system was pretty straightforward. If the girls needed to be fed before 2 a.m., then I would do it. And if it were after 2 a.m., then she would do it. Because the last thing you need in life is to negotiate who's getting up to feed the baby in the middle of the night. Because if you don't have a plan, if you don't have a system and the baby starts crying, like, then you have to start playing that game that, like, I'm going to pretend like I'm a sleep game. That we, don't act like it was just me. Like, you're laying there. And you start, like, oh, I got to pretend like I'm snoring, but you don't know what you snore like. But they do. And you don't want to have an argument at 2 in the morning about whose turn it is to feed the baby. Uh, because then... Like the, the winner in that philosophical argument is, don't, don't you love our child? Why don't you love our child any more than you do? And years ago, like back in the old days, dads got off the hook because babies needed to be fed. Nothing I can do for you. Go ahead, mom. And then somebody went out and invented that pump. And then dads had to start feeding people in the middle of the night. <laughs> and you, you would think, that you were going to not sleep for a little while, and then as your kids got older, like you would get some sleep back. But that doesn't happen. I am 44 years old. My mom still loses sleep over me. She's worried about what's happening with me. And like our girls, like I hear things in the middle of the night. It's like, what was that? Who is that? Why is she getting water? 
Are they up? Who's doing? So you never sleep because you're always, so I saw a mattress ad a couple of years ago, and the ad said, so good, you'll sleep like before you had kids. I was like, that is the greatest ad ever. It's a false promise, but it's a great ad. <laughs> but the, the truth of my life, though, is that even though our girls are older and they typically don't need things in the middle of the night, though we did, for some odd reason, have a smoke detector go off at one in the morning the other night with ceilings that are like 15 foot high, which that was fun. Though they don't need me as much in the middle of the night, I still have a lot of sleepless nights. I don't sleep really well. If I sleep about five hours, that's a really good night for me. I just don't sleep well. And I'm, I'm one of those people that if I wake up in the middle of the night, and honestly, if it's after like 3.30 in the morning, um, I'll just go ahead and get up and stay up. But it's not just because of the girls. And I don't have to tell you this because a lot of you have sleepless nights too. That everywhere you look in our world and in our culture, it seems like the world is fraying at the edges and falling apart in the center. That we live in this crazy, odd time of what feels like madness, that there is war and rumors of war and because of the internet, things that you used to could only hear a whisper about on the other side of the world, murdered journalists, famines, drought. Well, now all of that gets delivered to you every day on your phone. And what used to hold our culture together, or what seemed to hold it together, just these very predictable institutions and norms seem to be crumbling away. And fewer and fewer people have any real sense of what to do about it. I just imagine, like just this last week, black churches across the South were burned. A dozen pipe bombs were sent to people in the public sphere. And yesterday, a guy walks into a synagogue in Pittsburgh and kills 11 people and wounds 29 others. Like, it's no wonder that so many of us are sleeping so much less And the more people I talk to, whether it's just over coffee or dinner or we get together for a lunch, like what they are reporting back to me, what my wife hears when she talks to her friends, from people of all age groups, all socioeconomic classes, is just this deep sense of anxiety. That more and more we live in an anxious culture. Do you know, like last year in 2017, books about dealing with anxiety 
the sales of books dealing with anxiety increased 25%. And when I boil down so many of the conversations that I have with people, what's, what's at the bottom of it is just anxiety. And I know some of us have real diagnosable anxiety disorders and those need medical attention and you should get that. But what's probably even more popular is just this general diffuse sense of anxiety in our world. And we're so anxious that we are even anxious about stuff that hardly ever happens. Like there are parents who are anxious that their kid is going to grow up and become destitute and homeless if they don't get into the right preschool. Like if, if you're an American living in America, you are more likely to die from having a television fall on you than at the hands of a terrorist. Facebook is going to break into your house and steal your underwear and post it on eBay for sale if you don't copy and paste this post. <laughs> we are an anxious people. And the more people I talk with, we're primarily anxious about four things. We're anxious about fear, loss, death, and disappointment. Fear, loss, death, and disappointment. Like we're fearful about our children, about their future. We're, we're fearful about our country, what's happening or what's not happening, or, or what we think would be ultimate flourishing for the people around us. Maybe we're fearful about our economic future or a job. Maybe we're in school and we're fearful about what am I going to do when I'm finally out of school and have to actually go and do something. Some of us are fearful about when we have to leave home. Some of us are fearful about when our kids come back home. We're fearful about loss. Because for many of us, we lost something or someone who is really valuable and important to us. And we are concerned, we are anxious about losing something again. Some of us, somewhere along the line, just lost a dream. Maybe all of us are worried about death because the one thing that we have in common is that we will all die. And, and though we know that, for some of us, death is a whole lot closer than we wish it were. Or maybe it was someone in our family, a wife, a husband, a child, a parent, who died too soon. And then for others, it's just disappointment. That we'd set out on a course and we thought we knew what was going to happen or we had an idea about what was going to happen and what we expected to happen didn't happen. And fear, loss, death, disappointment, what they all have in common is that they all tempt us to never hope again. Because life oftentimes just doesn't turn out the way that we expected. We expected this marriage to be a good one and to hold together 
And all those things that we said about loving one another for a lifetime at our wedding, we really expected that to be true. Like we expected to find Mr. Wright or our princess and they haven't come along. Or we expected that after we found Mr. Wright or our princess, then we would start a family together. And we've been trying, but the kids haven't come yet. We expected to grow old with this person. And that person's no longer here, and now we're just growing old. We didn't expect for the kids that we raised and loved to grow up and then go off into the world and misfire. So often, life just does not turn out the way that we expected. And that's true for me. I've shared a couple of different places about what I consider the, the worst year of my life, which was 2004. And so my wife Rochelle and I had been married about five years, and through that time, um, we had been trying to start a family. As a matter of fact, a couple of months before we got married, um, I was living in the Valley, and Rochelle was in graduate school and in Austin. And she called and she said she had been to the doctor, and the doctor told her that it was extremely unlikely that she'd ever be able to have children. And so those early years of our marriage, we spent time in doctor's visits, trying to get our arms around what was going on, and then we found a great doctor here in the medical center, and one random Tuesday afternoon, he called to tell Rochelle, hey, you're pregnant. I came home that night from a meeting late, and she says, I have something to tell you. And I said, what? She said, I'm pregnant. I said, is it mine? <laughs> and our oldest daughter, Malia, was born in November 2003. Well, it was just a couple of months after that, in January of 2004, Rochelle's mom called me. It was about 8 o'clock one night, and she called to let me know that Rochelle's father had gone to the dentist earlier that day, came home, was sitting in his lazy boy, and looked at her and said, I don't know why I feel so badly. Had a heart attack and died. Rochelle's an only child. And in so many ways, her father was her hero. And in the time that I had known him, he had become special to me and a mentor. And there's really nothing like those early months right after that happened when you have just celebrated and been elated at the birth of your first child. And there's this part of you that wonders in the back of your mind whether or not in the cosmic scheme of things you had to trade one life for another. And it wasn't long after that, 
I was working with a congregation here in town, and I'd been working uh, in the youth ministry there, and they were looking for a senior pastor, and a lot of people there said, oh, yeah, you should, you should do that. And they um, asked me to preach for them for about 10 months, and I did that three out of four Sundays. And the church was starting to grow, especially starting to grow with young people. And I really thought that was, what was going to happen is that they were just going to move me into that role. And they came back and they said, no, we're not going to do that because we just think that you're too young. And even though we've got a lot of young people starting to worship here with us, they're not making a big difference in the budget. It wasn't too long after that that we got a letter in the mail. And this house that we had built in Katy, that the taxes had been underestimated, and we owed the government a lot of money. (laughs) And we had saved for all these years for Rochelle to be able to stay at home when we had children. But we wanted to keep our house, and so it was going to change a lot of things in our future, so we just had to write the check. And it wasn't too long after that that Rochelle's mom called again and said that she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And about that same time, there was this group of guys who I went to college with, and we had started praying together in college. We get together about once a year, and we were all having a bad year. And so we were at this lake house, sort of sitting around in a circle just talking And I've got one friend who had just been through a divorce. I remember going down to the family courthouse there in Harris County in downtown. His wife had had a severe eating disorder. And they worked and tried to get through it, but she just couldn't. And she thought the thing actually to set him free would be to divorce him. And the judge asked him there, says, do you consent to this divorce? And he says, oh, I really don't want it. But if she does, there's not a whole lot that I can say about that. And another friend He and his wife had walked the same journey of infertility that we had, and they had spent thousands and thousands of dollars of their own money and tens of thousands of dollars of other people's money trying to figure everything out, and still, at that point, nothing. Another friend of ours had a daughter who was two at the time, But she had some special challenges. I remember him meeting me uh, just north of town here two months before she was born. He says, well, we have some news about the baby. Um, The doctors are telling us that she's been diagnosed with dwarfism. And because she was two, she was starting to get to that age where it was the kind of thing where other people would start to notice. And they were trying to figure out how they were going to walk their own family through that and walk her through it and people at their church. And because we were all um, in ministry, we sat around at this lake house just sort of philosophizing and theologizing. It was very much like Job's friends just sort of sitting around talking about the problem of pain and what God was doing in the world. And so at that, at that moment, we started a tradition. It's a tradition that we continue whenever we're all together, and it's to ask each other a question. And it's a question that we borrow from one of my favorite writers. Her name is Barbara Brown Taylor. And the question is this. What's saving your life right now? Like, like what is the thing right now that is giving you hope, that is giving you life, that, that is allowing you to press through? What's saving your life right now? And when I think about that question, 
Um, my mind always returns to the opening of First Peter, where Peter tells the church this. He says, Blessed is God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One, because He has raised Jesus, the Anointed, from death. Through His great mercy, we have been reborn into a living hope. And this is such an odd little thing to be reminded of. Because we're very acquainted with death. It's one of the things that gives us anxiety. But Peter says because of death, because of the death of Jesus, like we live with a living hope. And I know life does not always feel like hope. And so it might be helpful to know a little bit about Peter. So if you've been around the Bible a little bit, if you've read some of the Gospels, you will know that Peter was one of the disciples of Jesus. And Peter never really made the dean's list. Like Peter is kind of the valedictorian of summer school. That's Peter. But after Jesus ascends to heaven, after Jesus goes to be with the Father, Peter becomes one of the leaders in the church. Like there, there are two really important leaders in the church. Uh, one that you might be well acquainted with, his name is Paul. And Paul is kind of the leader of the Gentile churches, mostly because the Jews didn't like him very much because he killed their friends and relatives. But the leader of the Jewish church is this guy, Peter. And there are all of these sermons in the book of Acts, and Peter gives half of them. And he becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, the Jewish churches. But it doesn't take very long after the church, after the Christians start assembling in Jerusalem for the persecution to start. And this thing called the diaspora, or the dispersion, where all of these Jews have to just leave and get away to escape persecution. And so one night, Peter decides to sit down and write to all of these churches, all of these Christians who are out spread everywhere, because it's not like there's radio or TV. He can't just send an email or send something up to a satellite. He's got to write a letter to all of them, because there are some things that he really needs them to know about where they are, because life had not turned out the way they expected. Because they expected, this Jesus guy, this is a good deal. Like, who wouldn't be interested in love and acceptance? and healing, recovery of sight for the blind, that the lame walk. Who wouldn't be excited about this? This is going to be on fire. They expected everybody would embrace it. And they didn't. And they said, well, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that we have been waiting for. This is the one that our great-great-grandparents told us about. He's going to come back soon. That's what they expected. But he didn't. And so now they are living in, a, in places they've never been and experiencing a life they never envisioned. And he writes them about hope and goes on and on for chapters talking about hope. And then toward the end of the letter, knowing what they're dealing with and knowing what we're dealing with, this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 5. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So what are we supposed to do with our anxiety? Peter says, cast all of it on him. And why? Because Jesus cares for you. 
And there are a lot of things in the scriptures that if we were being honest with ourselves are often just really hard to believe. Like it's hard to believe that a whale swallows a man and just kicks him out on dry land in a few days. And it's hard to believe that a group of people can walk around a city seven times and blow some trumpets and the walls will come down. And it's hard to believe that a virgin gave birth to God. And we don't do anybody a service by acting like those aren't hard to believe. But of all the things that are hard to believe, I think maybe in the 21st century, the hardest thing for many of us to believe is that Jesus cares for you. That wherever you are, however you got here this morning, whatever's going on in your life, like Jesus really does care. Like that marriage that is floundering when you don't know what to do and it feels hopeless and you feel alone. Like Jesus cares. The fact that you have been trying to have a child and you can't. Jesus does care. The fact that you've got a child now with all of their difficulties and beauties and some of us have children who have diagnoses and they're sick or they're mentally suffering, that all of that, that Jesus does care. That for those of us that have more month than we have money, Jesus does care. And all of that anxiety that we carry around, how much of that do we carry? Because it seems like no one cares. So when our family moved back to Texas six years ago from California, uh, the first few months that we were back uh, were really hard. And, and so we had some property that we needed to get rid of in California. And I don't know if you've ever lived in California, but California, for all of its beauty, makes everything difficult. And Rochelle wasn't working yet. She didn't know what she quite wanted to do. And I'd gone to work for this small church in Temple, Texas. And they couldn't pay very much, but we loved them. And they were a great group of people. And we didn't know where our girls were going to go to school. And we got back, and Rochelle's car um, had this major breakdown that we had to fix. And my car was on its last legs anyway. And we were living um, with Rochelle's mom, my mother-in-law. And some of you have lived with family members before. And there are some really good things about that. And then there are some really bad things about that. I think the clock on that is six months. (laughs) And I just felt like everything was unraveling. And so one day I was sitting on the couch on the computer uh, reading blogs because that was a thing that people used to do. And there's one blog that I read was giving away a week-long camp for girls the ages of my oldest daughter. And this camp was in Rome, Georgia. I was raised in Georgia. It was at Windshape Wilderness, 
which is this fabulous camp that I had been to before. It's owned by Chick-fil-A, so I just figured she's going to go to Chick-fil-A camp and eat chicken sandwiches all week. And so I never went any of the things like that, but I decided I'll go ahead and enter into uh, the giveaway. A couple of days later, I got this email. And our oldest daughter, Malia, had won a week away at chicken sandwich camp. <laughs> and one of the things you need to know about me is I'm, I'm not a crier. When I got this email, I got sat there and wept. Because of all of that going on, I was reminded by God that I am not forgotten. And I know it is so easy to lose hope and feel like you are forgotten. That no one knows and that even the people who know really don't care. But Peter's word to us is that we have a living hope. And the reason we get confused is sometimes we confuse the word hope with some other things that aren't really hope. Sometimes we confuse hope with the idea of optimism. Like, I'm just going to be optimistic, but that's not what biblical hope means. Optimism's good, but one of the things you need to know is like optimism is a virtue. Is, it, optimism isn't a virtue, it's a character trait. And so for me, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are optimists and, and people who live in reality. You can choose to be whatever you want to be. Or some of us think that hope is positivity. That, that when things are going on in our lives that we wouldn't choose. If we just stay positive, as if energy changes things. And that's not what the scriptures mean by hope. And this isn't a perfect example. It doesn't, it's not good for every case. But maybe the next time you're reading through the scriptures and you come across the word hope, maybe a better word to insert there is expects. That people who follow Jesus are people who live in expectation of what God is doing. That so much of what God is up to in the world has already happened, but more of it is to come, and we expect. And so if I had a word for you this morning, it would be this. Don't stop expecting things from God. In all of our anxiety and trouble, don't stop expecting things. That God is up to something good and meaningful and beautiful in your life. Because it's easy to give up. It's easy to not hope when life doesn't turn out the way you expected. There's a little story tucked in the back end of the Gospel of Luke. After Jesus has been crucified and buried and resurrected. There are two guys on the road to Emmaus and they are suddenly greeted by a third guy who we all know from having read the story is Jesus. 
And Jesus comes along and he says, hey, so what's going on? What's everybody talking about? What's in the headlines? And they say, are, are you the only guy who doesn't know what's happened the last few days? Which is funny because Jesus is the only guy who knows what's happened the last few days. And they tell him the story of Jesus. And they said, we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the Savior of Israel. But it doesn't look like what we expected. And when it doesn't look like what we expected, we give up hope. We had hoped. We had hoped. And maybe the thing that some of us need to confess this morning is that though we're here and intellectually we believe that Jesus is God and all of that, that we are people who live as if we had hoped. And so when they get to where they're going, they turn to Jesus and say, hey, why don't you stick around and have dinner with us? We're going to eat. But since you're our guest, why don't you bless the food? And at that point, Jesus takes the bread and breaks it. And they realize what we knew the whole time. That because Jesus had been crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, that hope lives. And when we gather together to break bread together, to come to the table, what we celebrate is that we have a living hope. Let me pray for you. God, may we be people of hope and expectation as we live in between what you have done and what you are doing. May we celebrate the goodness that is inherent in you and the way that you have called us into it. And let us be, God, people who extend goodness to all of the world. And we ask this through Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.